There are only a handful of people who have spent a lifetime in the world of organizational health and wellness. Individuals who have seen it from the inside out, not for years, but for decade upon decade. Today, we get the opportunity to sit down with one of those rare individuals and ask all the questions we've ever wanted to ask about the past, the present, and the future of organizational health and wellness. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and our guest today is Dr. Judd Allen. If you've been to any health and wellness conference over, I'd say the last 40 years, you've heard Dr. Allen speak, and you've probably been greeted by his genuine smile as you passed in the hallway. He's been the president for the Human Resources Institute since 1977, written a multitude of books, and contributed to our profession in a way very few have done. If you've been considering pursuing certification as a health and wellness coach, you've likely missed our MBHWC-approved January core training, but we've got another one on tap that will probably fit with your schedule. By the way, if you're a licensed professional in another area, such as a physical therapist, nurse, OT, or others, you probably can earn CEUs in addition to the NBHWC CECs that we all already offer students. Check in with us on details. It's all on the website, catalystcoachinginstitute.com, or shoot us an email, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com, and we can set up a call. Now, it's time to be a Catalyst with Dr. Judd Allen on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health wellness and performance coaching podcast all right well my friend it's so good to have you here thanks for joining us nice to be here i'm looking forward to our conversation now you've spent and this is not an exaggeration folks a lifetime in the world of health and wellness organizational health and wellness specifically if if you were going to dial in three of the most important lessons you've learned throughout that time it might be from when your dad was doing stuff it might be things that you've done it might be kind of as you're looking forward what what would spring to the top of that list and, and we don't stay have to stay with three if, if five pop in mind whatever let's just run with this a little bit what what were the big ones well the big one you know when i was in graduate school I was interested in our subject, and so I immediately started doing surveys, and two of the questions I asked were, in the past year, have you attempted any sort of wellness goal? Mm. And um, then I also asked, how successful were you? And if I had time, I asked a third question, what are your intentions for the coming year? And uh, what was remarkable to me right from the start was 80 plus percent of people in these surveys, and I did my dissertation on senior citizens and my uh, master's thesis on uh, general population, are attempting each year to achieve a wellness goal. 80 percent. Wow. So, and the, often the people that aren't doing it are, just are um, reluctant because they've had bad experience with sure. their past efforts. Sure. And so, um, uh, that second question became the more uh, troubling result, and that is less than 20% of people said they were fully successful at making the changes that they had intended. Um, and so uh, that became a subject that I was very interested in, like how do we help people uh, to make those changes stick? Because most of the benefits are from a long-term change, not a temporary change. And um, as it turns out, the environment, the culture, is the key differential, differential in whether people can maintain the changes that they want. And um, that uh, aha 
has been profound, but I can't say that the whole industry followed me down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, I think that in our culture, uh, there is a belief that if people wanted to change, uh, they would do it. And so um, the uh, emphasis has been what's called the health beliefs model in our industry, where you try to motivate people and then give them some of the skills that they would need, thinking that that's going to be adequate to make these changes. And I think those things are good things, but they're, in my view, to achieve the long-term changes, you want that environment to uh, support people in those changes. It, it's not, uh, it's, it's mostly an attention issue. You know, you could pay attention to what you eat for uh, six months or um, five months, and then you go back to whatever the culture is dictating, basically. And um, so I have been interested not in getting us away from the idea that we want people and give them an interest, but to add in this new idea, which is how do we create supportive environments uh, so that they'll succeed over the long term. And so that was probably the biggest aha. Okay, but let's pause on, on that one for a second. I want you to keep rolling with this, but let's pause on that for a second, because when I think of culture... I think of a few different cultures. You have the community. You have, we live in Fort Collins, Colorado, for example. Good access to walking trails, cycling, hiking, et cetera. So that's the community culture. And then we have the company, the organizational culture, which I, I think is what your focus generally is. Then you have the family and friends culture. Do you try to loop those together? I mean, you've done so much yeah, work in yeah, this, you know, but what is my that? My first book. My first book was called Healthy Habits, Helpful Friends. So it was about how we could be more effective in supporting our friends in making changes. Um, so that was really, a, and I made a movie about that called With a Little Help from My Friends. And um, so I did think that was important. And then I think the household is a culture that we really have to pay attention to. I wrote a book called Bringing Wellness Home which was about this idea, you know, how do you create a home environment that makes uh, wellness work? And then I've written books, of course, as you mentioned, Brad, about the workplace as a supportive environment. Um, but I do think that each of these microcultures have a big impact as well as the community culture. Um, I think that many workplaces have missed that uh, story. So they try to do things right uh, at the work site, but most of us are very strongly influenced by our friends and what happens at home and in the community. So um, I do think it's important for work sites to make more use of community resources. So in Colorado, you have those great biking trails and uh, other outdoor uh, support systems and even uh, some great uh, indoor facilities okay. for us. And I think that uh, trying to do everything at the work site was always a mistake because that's not where we live. <laughs> we do live sometimes at work, but it's not the predominant uh, story. Uh, so I think that that's a smart move that you mentioned to kind of uh, broaden our perspective to help people 
create supportive environments among their friends and at home, as well as at the work site. So let's, let's run down that a little bit. If I'm an HR director, benefits consultant, uh, and I'm listening to this, I'm saying, oh, yeah, he is so right. What, what would you recommend to me if we're, if, we're, if we're doing pretty well with the work site stuff, what can we do to support the home and, I mean, the community? There's only so much yeah. you can do to change the community without being involved with the, you know, the, the political system. Yeah, and the- I'm not sure changing the community is really the necessity, although I have been involved in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and other places in community change projects. But I think keying people in on community resources is something that can okay. be done. Okay. What's available. Um, you know, to have a living rather than static directory of great places to exercise indoors, great places to get um, stress release, great places for healthy eating. Uh, those things could be maintained by an online system within the work site where people are sharing their best uh, ideas and rating it. Right. And just like a Yelp, but a wellness Yelp. Right. Okay. Uh, Good. Then, uh, um, you know, I, as I said, do think that there's some skills involved in creating a good uh, household support network. That's why I wrote the book about it. I feel that um, it it's good to have some tools in your toolkit for thinking about culture at home. You know, what are so even at home, you have norms, for example, there could be a norm to eat dessert or not eat dessert. Mm. There could be a norm for how much screen time we do. Uh, there could be a norm for whether we turn off electronic uh, devices at a certain hour so we're not interrupting our sleep. All these things are culture ideas. And so there's plenty we could do to create a supportive culture at home, but it requires a little uh, knowledge about what a culture is and what you can do about it. Uh, so I think uh, that that's a major piece. I, I don't think we can necessarily follow people into their homes. They don't want us there. <laughs> we could create an, a knowledge about what a supportive home environment is and uh, support and reward people for doing something about that. So um, what about the, uh, let's say you have a married couple and when they're both on board, things flow, but let's say one of them's not yet on board. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say that I've been married 20 years. I decide I, we really we need to make some changes with the kids, the family, et cetera. And my wife, I'm fortunate. She's incredibly supportive. She drives a lot of it, but let's say she didn't. Let's say she's like, no, we're good. Why would we change stuff? Any tips for that person who's in their family structure? Yeah. Things are pretty fine the way they are, but they realize they're not fine. Well, first off, I want to say, Brad, that you're describing a situation that's unusual, that most of the time it's both. And, and, you know, we shouldn't really focus on the couple anymore because households are a very varied group now. It's not, you know, it's multi-generational. It's friends living together. There are all sorts of configurations uh, and that was a mistake early on. I think IBM and some other companies tried to make it all about a uh, traditional family mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't exist. So you're kind of narrowing your focus that way. Anyway, I'm off subject. So I think that um, the broad view of wellness has something for everyone. 
So uh, your spouse may not be as interested in physical activity, but they might be interested in uh, stress issues or having stronger social relationships with friends and family. And so keying into what people's interests are, it's not always the same list, could be a way to bring people in who are on the fence. Yeah, um, that, absolutely. Um, but if if you're coming home to your roommates and you're saying, hey, let's let's start doing such and such with our eating, and they're like, nah, like you probably wouldn't go down the list. Okay, let's do stress. Okay, let's do like, is there any way to move that dial a little bit yeah, I with think, the person you know, that's not on board? Every health behavior has its own case in terms of what why it's important. But you know, I'm uh, very happy to report <coughs> that just the opportunity to help another person is sometimes enough to motivate people. So um, if you look at this as a kindness subject, where uh, I'll give you an example. I'm a little bit overweight. I've, I've added my COVID-19. <laughs> so um, I am needing uh, the support of my family, my daughter, who, who is 18, uh, to help me uh, address that. Because, you know, she's... Uh, creating an environment that's not food healthy for me, I'm likely to dig into her uh, issues because I like all foods. Sure. That, that. Anyway, I'm off subject, but I can appeal to my daughter who's not that interested perhaps in eating the way I need to, but to be helpful to me. Mm. So maybe if she uh, wants to eat those things to do it uh, when she's out of the house or, um, or keep things separate from our food, Supply, so I'm not reaching over the Twinkies to get to the carrots in right. the back of the plane. So um, I think an appeal towards kindness is a helpful love uh, sub, sub story here uh, that you have to live in the same uh, way to be supportive of each other. Uh, but we can make it easier for the other person. And that can be just about helping them. I love that. Because you want to, I like that's a net, you just tied into just as you were saying it, I think everyone listening is like, yeah, yeah, I'd want to do that. I want to help my roommate, my spouse, my kids, whatever. Um, Okay. I interrupt you as you were going through some of the top things. What what are some of the others that jump out? But so let me just say in summary of the last one is I think the, View, and it's a misunderstanding or misread, is that people are not interested in wellness and we have to motivate them. Agreed. So I think the story is different. The people are interested, they're trying all the time, but they're not being successful. And that discourages people and gets them a little bit reluctant to, to broach the subject, basically. Right. Now, I completely agree. Wellness is better. We, we Everyone wants better. And that's what health and wellness is all about. So Great, so I, great I clarification. It, yeah. And so our industry still emphasizes this motivation idea when I think it should turn to this other subject, which is how do you create an environment where people succeed? So um, the second kind of aha for me um, was, in, you know, that from an organizational change standpoint, we really need to be uh, clearer about what culture is um, because 
culture means a lot of different things and you kind of need some uh, hooks to hang this uh, subject on because it's, it's um, not easy to change culture unless you can kind of uh, break it down into some pieces. And so I've been working with six general concepts to make culture. They all overlap and help each other. And I'll just name them. Okay. So the first leadership support to have uh, leaders uh, removing barriers and, and being role models, this sort of piece. Peer support, we've talked about already, this idea of people helping each other uh, make changes. Um, and then um, the third idea is norms. So what would be some norms that we'd like to create uh, that would be helpful to us at this point? Um, with COVID, the norms that we've been interested in are people staying six feet apart or wearing a mask in uh, interior spaces or getting vaccinated. Um, so norms are important. Um, then values. A culture has what's called shared values. So it's not an individual value, but it's setting. We sometimes call them priorities. So are we going to value the health and well-being of our employees. And what does that mean? Uh, we want to get values for wellness on the list of core values. So we're about profitability or improving our product or, you know, there are other things, you know, customer service, but we also want the health and well-being of people to be on the list of values. So it's not that we have to be the top value, but we have to be on the list of core uh, values. And then um, the fourth dimension of culture, maybe I'm up to five, five. Is, uh, is touch points. So touch points are informal and formal policies and practices that shape uh, our behavior over time. So there are things like rewards and training and communication and recruitment and selection. I actually have 13 of these touch points that I work with. But, you know, it's basically removing barriers and creating these influences that are day-to-day -day influences that shape uh, norms and culture. And um, so uh, it's not that you have to use all 13, but you need to come up with enough of them working in your favor to change the culture. So, you, you know, it's a package idea. So um, you need to have adequate training or communication or rewards or pushback, you know, smoke, no smoking policy to form a pushback. Um, or um, one of the most powerful touch points is actually relationship development. So our, how are people forming their friendships? You want that to be working in favor of healthy activities. And so touch points and then the final, Sixth one, we, I call social climate, and that is um, it's similar to morale, but it's like, are people really connected as a group and feeling? I have three factors I look at, sense of community, shared vision, and positive outlook. So the climate kind of is like the yeast in making bread. You have to have this feeling that we're in this together, we care for each other, we have hope uh, to make 
changes happen, whether it's individual change or organizational change. Uh, so climate is nice in that it's both a great uh, factor in creating a successful company and helping people be healthy. You know, having a sense of community, feeling belonging and trusting one another, getting to know each other. Uh, those things are important both from a personal health standpoint, so from an organizational uh, effectiveness and support standpoint. So those six, I think having those six to work with gives people some mechanism to address the culture. You know, otherwise, culture is just a nebulous thing out there. So I like to give people some uh, hooks when they're working on culture. And those are the six I work with. Okay. And then, um, so that's been a aha for me is how do you break it down? How do you make it uh, actionable? And then um, maybe the third, and this has been a hard one to implement, is that culture change is a process. It's not an event. So it's best to be systematic in changing culture. And um, I normally break it down into a four-phase idea, but other, you could break it down in another way. But the first phase is to do an analysis of the current culture and to get leadership on board. Uh, The second phase is to explain what you found out in your analysis and introduce this new culture idea to everyone and how they can help. Um, The third phase is this integration phase where uh, you want that new culture to get the support from those touch points, the modeling, the training, the rewards, the communication, all the different organizational uh, mechanisms that shape the culture. And then the fourth phase is to evaluate your progress, celebrate what you've accomplished and plan for a new round. So I actually try to help my organizations do this on an annual basis. So they might pick COVID this year as a culture thrust and say, what is our current culture? How are we going to introduce this to everyone? What policies and practices do we need to change to support that? And then how did we do? And what's next year's project? Um, Because I think you kind of build a wellness culture uh, kind of one frame at a time. And over time, this, I'll call it a cycle, can really build you a great culture, but we don't have any idea what the culture challenges are going to be next year or 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need a system to make the culture change happen. If you can create that system, you're really way ahead of the game, in my view. Uh, We had no idea that COVID was coming down the pike, but um, we uh, needed a system to make that work, and we didn't have it often, so we needed it. Yeah. Well, how about surprises? What are some of the things that you've discovered in doing this for literally 40 years that people would say, wait, what? What What? what was that he just said in terms of yeah. culture and organizational health and wellness? Well, one was a surprise on the disappointment side. So um, I would say that even though I've been pitching this for 40 years, and maybe this is me feeling... Um, Uh, I have some regrets personally about my own success as a professional. I've tried, but 
I would have thought that we'd be much more further along with this culture idea mm-hmm. than we have been. We've been doing individual change every which way for 35 years. And I've been preaching or working on this subject now for as long, but I'm getting much less traction than I had hoped. Uh, I think that our culture is a highly individualistic culture and we want to see change as an individual change process. And so we kind of are blindsided by the culture piece. Um, Now, I do think at the upper levels, like the executives right now, they know that they can't succeed one person at a time. They have to do a culture change. So it's kind of starting to become clear to everyone that we can't possibly achieve our goals going one person at a time. We need to also create a supportive culture. So I guess that's been a a surprise that it's taken so long for us to come to that conclusion. It's almost like we wore out every possible form of individual solution. And now we're finally saying, well, maybe the culture after all is what we need to do. Mm. Now we've gone through stages of change. We've gone through um, motivational interviewing. We've gone through um, every possible incarnation. We've gone through targeted health information, all of which have been great ideas. And I'm in favor of all of them. But we've kind of, it's only after we've exhausted every possible incarnation of a health risk assessment or, you know, all these things that we're finally saying, hey, maybe the culture is going to be what we need to do after all. But it's almost like that's creating the the, uh, flow of the stream or the river. So the intrinsic motivation, the motivational interviewing, the stages of change, all of those things give the individual the tools they need to move forward. But then if they're swimming upstream, trying to swim upstream against a culture, even if, and we got a chance to interview the Pochaskas in our hundredth episode, and we'll never forget that as long as I live, but even, even with the value of that, if you're swimming, yeah, if you're trying to swim upstream in your family, in your organization, it's just tough. So I I love what you're saying there. Any other surprises that make you. I want to just reiterate that view that, I think all those ideas have been great yeah, ideas. Yeah, no, and, and I think you clarified and Prochaska that. on, I, you know, Jim Prochaska is a good friend of mine, his wife also. And so I'm all in favor, and you'll see in my books, I talk about stages sure. of change. Yeah, yeah. And I've been in favor of every idea. You know, Vic Strecker came out with this idea of, you know, meaning and purpose a couple of years ago. I think it's great. I'm not opposed to the no, idea. No. And I don't think you came across that way. I just see that we could go so much further with any of these ideas if we also worked on the culture side. Get the it. river flowing the right direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah no doubt. Um, well, what's different now compared to when your father was running his health and wellness consulting business? Because I think you give us a unique perspective that most of us don't have. I've been in this a long time, but you grew up in it. And then you've been in it a long time. So whereas I didn't, yeah. my dad was an accountant. I understood numbers. <laughs> and then I moved into this. You, you've, you, you're born into this, frankly. So what's, I, what's I, changed? I've been interested from the beginning. Yeah. And what's so been one different? Thing is, my dad was trained as a clinical psychologist. And I'm a psychologist, but I've never practiced clinical work. His um, intake in these big companies was to be the uh, clinical psychologist. He would take on the CEO of the company and make it his responsibility to help them personally. 
And I admired that. I mean, he was uh, that role with Johnson and Johnson or with other companies. So he kind of had that ear of the executive. Um, and I haven't pursued that. I'm not even sure it's been available to me. I'm lucky if I ever meet the CEO of these companies they are often not even in our country. So um, I've been working more mid-tier with um, professionals and wellness professionals. So that changed a lot. We were first starting in the wellness industry in the 1970s. It was such a new thing that um, it was really open space for us to add our uh, approach. Sure. And now uh, when I come into an organization, they already have done um, maybe a health assessment for 10 years or more or other things. And they're frustrated often, or they wouldn't bring me in with what results they're getting. So they want to strengthen their programs. And so they bring in the culture guy and that's been uh, helpful to me, but I'm at a different, uh, coming in in a different place than when you're a fresh idea, no one's doing it and you're just inventing it. So that's different. Um, Technology has been great. Uh, You know, I used to have full-time key punchers that just put in data into computers. Now people add their own uh, data right on out the questionnaire. I don't have that anymore. Uh, Just that what we're doing today with Zoom is such a great way for us to connect and cut distances down. I've been, the last year I made, like you, I've made 160 podcast episodes. And I also have been working with a web portal called Kajabi, which is a way to deliver online training. And so I've just built nine courses in culture. Um, One is for culture coaches, one is for managers on on their role, uh, one on peer support, household support. Anyway, this ability for me to scale up now and reach uh, people that would only be able to hire me as a consultant, it's a big difference. Right, right. Uh, Just the reach I can have. Well, it keeps you off the road a little bit. Well, with with, uh, the pandemic, that's been a health issue as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm able to have a much bigger impact uh, with technology than I ever could have dreamt of, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's that's very cool. Um, so what's changed? I guess, you know, I love the original wellness idea that Don Ardell and Bill Hettler and other people came up with. It was very holistic and it was very proactive. Jack Travis is another friend of mine, wrote a bestseller on uh, wellness. And um, I think that they were really uh, visionary in articulating that we need to be more than just not sick. We need to be full people. Um, And um, I felt uh, excited about their vision. Um, And I think that what's changed is our brand has had to change so much. Now that there are as wellness dog food and wellness health clinics and wellness everything we've had to change our language so now maybe we use the word well-being but i've been um i think the original vision was terrific and we just 
have to keep moving ahead of the uh, marketing teams that are using whatever language. I'm sure there'll be well-being dog food soon. So, you know, it's just, um, you know, you got my drift. It's yeah. been an interesting uh, uh, evolving world and I've embraced all of it. So um, I remember when the Institute for Health and Productivity Management came up and I was like, well, that's another way to look at what we're doing. Or um, as I said, uh, when HERO, the Health Enhancement Research Organization, happened, uh, they went with Health Enhancement as their brand. Uh, when the American Journal of Health Promotion was created, when Michael O'Donnell and I was a first editor on that journal, um, when that happened 25 years ago, Health Promotion was a brand. But I'm just saying we, we've had to kind of roll with the language a little bit right. uh, to keep yeah. relevant. That's interesting. That's good. All right. Um, so I, I'm preaching the choir here. So much of health and wellness is caught more than taught. You talked a little bit about the COVID-19 personally. What, what are some of the things for you over the years? It doesn't have to be current, but over the years, where have you seen the wellness world that you live in have a positive influence on your life? Wow. Well, you know, I just completed my 38th New York Marathon. That's awesome. So something about um, offering this to other people reinforces your own yes. uh, behavior. So, uh, and it's the teachers, not the students and Weight Watchers that keep the weight off. So just remember that, that That's every powerful. day we go out and help other people and help other organizations to uh, create a, a more supportive environment where uh, both learning and reinforcing our own commitments. And um, I'm finding that very helpful in my life. Uh, the uh, friends that I've made in our industry, I think one of my favorite things about wellness are the people like you that I've met along the way and the friendships I've developed. Uh, and I have even socialized with these people. I used to bring together about a dozen wellness people and take them on vacation with their families. Every really? Summer. Very cool. Uh, Larry Chapman yeah. and Michael O'Donnell and Bill Bond, all these people. I, we went to Ireland together. We went to Mexico together. We, um, and um, I love the friendships that I've developed. Uh, and I think we need to keep that spirit alive. We can't look at each other as competition. Right. We mm -hmm. really have to look at each other as part of a movement that's, uh, important for each of us to make a contribution to. And um, I feel that way about the Prochaskas and everyone. You know, I really wish everyone the best success. Uh, if anything, I want to add my two cents to make them more successful. That's all I want. Well, and it's so genuine. I, I mentioned during your uh, introduction that we, we pre-recorded, you are just, every time I see you in the hallway, every time it's a uh, big, genuine smile. Like you really, he, folks, he's not just saying this, like this is really Dr. Allen. This is how he feels. And it comes across every time you see him. So that's a really cool story about going on vacation with Michael and some of those other folks is, is that's, that's fantastic. Way to go. Yeah, it's been, it's been a wonderful ride. I've been fortunate, you know, my dad, of course, got me off to a great start. Um, and I've, felt a personal connection to wellness, um, to his life through this. So it's been a meaningful, spiritually meaningful uh, part of my life. 
it. So it's been a little easier for me than for many people. Some people ask me, how do you get into this? I say, get born into the right family. You got it made. Um, That's not very helpful. To anyone well, else. but it actually, yeah. I think you were looking over my shoulder and saw this next question because I, I wanted to ask you, if you were going to start a brand new business today providing health and wellness services, what would it look like? What would it incorporate? Not necessarily with your specific background, but looking at what's out there, what's available, what needs to happen, what what would that business look like? Yeah, so um, I, as I said, I really think uh, I would use technology, and that's an obvious one to everyone, uh, to leverage uh, your offering. Um, but I think these areas of household well-being and um, peer support are wholly undeveloped in our uh, industry. Um, and, you know, it's blue skies for anyone who wants to get into it. Yeah. And um, I um, think that um, it's important to uh, take some study and uh, maybe knowledge around, you know, this idea of supportive environments into the into this. So if you were trained in exercise physiology or nutrition or whatever, I think it's great that you have that background, but you may want to ponder the anthropological, sociological side uh, and, you know, read blue zones or read uh, other content that gives you that perspective. Uh, Because I'm not sure you get that automatically in the, current um, educational system. So you want to add that piece um, because it's an important piece. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good suggestion. We actually had Dan on the the author of the blue zones on as a guest. uh, I think it was last year sometime. Um, Last question, crystal ball time. What will employee health and wellness programs look like in the year 2035? So 12 years from now, 13 years from now, what, what do you, as you look forward and you say, Here's where I see us going. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing is, remember, I'm a hammer, so everything looks like a nail. <laughs> so I, I do think that uh, wellness and well-being will be a priority in almost all organizations and society because um, we uh, know that this is a, a good path for all of us. and. Uh, and I believe it will be true that more of the emphasis will be on supporting people and achieving their goals and less on trying to, um, I don't know, harass them to get started. I think it's a misplaced uh, use of our time and energy. And um, I think that um, hopefully uh, with the productivity gains that might come in 13 years that will finally figure out this work-life balance thing. Mm. You know, it, it hasn't worked out so far. It's, it, it's been uh, disproportionately uh, advantageous <laughs> to um, some sectors, but other sectors have had to work two jobs to make a living uh, or, um, you know, have, not seeing the benefit of all the productivity gains we've had. And I'm hoping that, that we can uh, kind of somehow spread the wealth, literally, 
so that everyone has a good life. And it's not just uh, the lucky few. I'm in that group of lucky few. And um, so this idea that everyone in our company should have a great life, uh, not just the people at the top or the people who are the stockholders or whatever. And, And it's not so much for me about redistributing. It's more about creating a society and a culture where everyone's a winner not some people are winners and some people are losers. And uh, I'm not interested uh, in lowering anyone's standard of living. So maybe that's why I'm, I'm interested in raising everyone's standard of living Um, and uh, having that ability to be with friends and family and uh, care for each other. I'd love that to be the predominant story of that uh, time, uh, um, you know, and I think it's possible. I, I think we haven't been doing so well with that. I think, you know, um, Marx would have had a lot of fun talking about capitalism right now because it's happening. We, we're squeezing the last drops out of our labor. But I, I think that companies don't have to do that. We can have a, a success where everyone wins, as I said, not just a few. And I don't think it's a necessary outcome of our economic system or the politics or anything. I think we can make everyone a winner. That's my goal. So and- I, I love the sound of that. I don't think there's anything, there's nobody listening to that goes, no, we don't want that. But let's chase that rabbit tail just for fun here at the end. The realities of that, what, what would be, what are some of your ideas? I know you're not running for office, but do you, do you have some practical yeah. Hey, a company yeah. could do this. Let's, we'll keep the politics out of it. A company could do X and they would not have their stock go into the toilet and yet their employees would have better lives. Do you have some specific yeah. things we can so get our arms around there? You, let me give you an example. So I'm a, right now, my foundation, I'm designing three culture change initiatives that are community change projects. So they would take place at a community level. Okay, But one of them is to have uh, the environment to have a seat at the table when decisions are made. So it doesn't mean it's the most important thing, but when the decision about packaging or the decision about transportation or the decision about how people are living, that the environment, you know, like a a tree is sitting there at the table adding uh, to the conversation basically. And I think that's very doable within our society to have uh, considerations not just be uh, narrowly focused on profit uh, and loss in the short term. So I'll give you an example of the opposite. So there, there have been software that's been created at the retail level that basically determines if there are enough customers in the room if there are, some employees are sent home. So, um, you know, you would be at a Starbucks, for example, and uh, if the register is not ringing sufficiently, then one employee would be said, well, you're not needed today. So that would be a system that doesn't take the human story that this poor person had to arrange for childcare and get themselves to the office and make it happen. Uh, they're just, you know, losing their pay for the day. 
And um, I don't think we can afford that anymore. I don't think uh, that our society can afford it, but I don't think our companies can afford to um, so miss, I don't know, judge uh, uh, this human capital. So you're almost seeing a a board seat um, for someone who represents the environment within the organization, someone who represents the employee well-being within the organization, not in a union company, you know, smashing heads, but more, look, we've got eight people at at the table and we've got the CEO, we've got the CFO, we've got CIO, we have the chief environmental officer, we have the chief well-being yeah, officer. I, Is that kind of what I'm you're not, thinking? I'm not leading that way. I'm actually thinking that all of us need to, it needs to be a norm. It's, you know, I'm the culture guy. <laughs> that when it is seen, somebody says, what are the health impacts of this for our employees? And then someone says, well, we've got that covered. What are the environmental impacts of what we're doing? So it isn't a person. It's all of us. It's just have, It's the norm. We wouldn't make a decision unless we said, is it, how is this going to affect the health and well-being of people? Um, and then we'd ask the second question, how is this going to help or hurt the environment? Mm-hmm. And it's just a norm as part of the decision process. So it's not that there would be somebody there who only has that focus. Um, I would like to see that done with um, the whole race relations thing, where we all say, how is this affecting people who are minorities in our population, whether it be LBGT or uh, different um, race or ethnic backgrounds? I don't want it to be like having a person there to kind of only be Not the only back. advocate right. out, the devil's advocate. Right. I want us all to say, this is important. How do we uh, make it part of the decision process, basically? Um, so that's my idea, I think. I like it. Um, yeah. Good way to wrap. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm having fun with it. You know, it's funny at this point in my career, I have enough money and time where I can do some um community projects. And my dad did this great project, you know, in the 1970s called the Clean Community System. And through Keep America Beautiful, we changed the littering culture around the world. Basically, until that time, it was very common to just toss your trash out the window or leave it in the park. And we designed a community change process that made that no longer the norm. And I'm looking to do that with the environment. Um, I'm looking to do that with police relations. I want to change the culture of policing, not just for the police, but in the community where violence is not the way we handle uh, our police work. Um, and where we, it's not, it would be against the norm, in other words. It would still happen, but it wouldn't be the standard. We wouldn't be throwing people up against cars and uh, searching them, we would be figuring out how to do this yeah. in a way that is a little less uh, pressure, basically. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of puzzling this, you know, because I think that things do have to happen at multiple levels. Um, I think some change has to happen at a community level and some change has to happen at a family level and at work sites. And so um, I think all are important. We just need to 
kind of creative spot for each of them, basically. Right. Beautiful. My friend, great to see you. All right. Nice to see you, Brad. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for jumping in. Take care. Sure. Bye. Well, how was that for nerding out on organizational health and wellness? Another big thanks to Dr. Judd Allen for joining us to share his insights. And, and seriously, folks, if you see him at a conference and he gives you a big, genuine smile as you pass in the hallway or, or talk to him during a, during a break, that's genuine. That's the real deal. Thanks to you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Next week's episode is one I've been looking forward to for a very very long time. It's one of those fascinating discussions that you're not going to forget. It's with best-selling author and popular columnist Ben Cohen. We're talking about the hot hand. You know, when you get on a streak, a winning streak, a shooting streak, and, and, and he's done years of research on this, wrote a best-selling book on it, super interesting, and he's going to talk about what the science reveals about how that really works in the world, not just with basketball, but across the board. You're going to love this one. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. We can set up a call or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources on the website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I will speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over at youtube.com slash coaching channel.